Welcome to WMFA, a podcast about why and how we write. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm speaking with R.O. Kwan. Her nationally best-selling first novel, The Incendiaries, is published by Riverhead and being translated into five languages. Named a best book of the year by over 40 publications, it is an American Booksellers Association Indie Next number one pick and an Indies Introduced selection. The Incendiaries was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle John Leonard Award for Best First Book, Los Angeles Times First Book Prize, and Northern California Independent Booksellers Association Fiction Prize. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, The Paris Review, BuzzFeed, NPR, and elsewhere. The Incendiaries tells the story of Will Kendall and Phoebe Lynn, two college students whose love is torn upside down when Phoebe, grieving her mother's death, which she blames herself for, falls in with a secretive cult led by a charismatic former student named John Leal. Will has just lost his own faith, a trait he shares with R.O. herself, who was raised Catholic and joined ecstatic Protestant churches in her youth. In the novel, Will grows more suspicious as Phoebe grows more indoctrinated and dangerous. The Incendiaries is swift and ferocious, alternating between Will's first-person accounts and more distant third-person chapters about Phoebe and John. A common adjective in blurbs about the book is dark, and it is that, but it is also incandescent. Aro's prose is vivid and precise. Champagne foams like gold dissolving. Someone tells small, milk lies of love. Perhaps not surprisingly, then, we talk here about how reading poetry is part of Aro's writing process. We also talk about having faith in the writing process. The incendiaries was eight years in the making. And figuring out not just who is telling the story, but why it's being told. You can hear a bonus segment from our conversation, in which Aro recommends her favorite writers on faith, by joining the WMFA Patreon community at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast and pledging just $2 a month. Catholicism, uh, much more so than other kinds of Christianity, um, they emphasize the action. I think that I do still have that in terms of just like showing up at the desk to write. I wanted to start by just asking you about the idea of faith when it comes to faith in writing and in the writing process. And I know that the book was a long time coming and it's your debut. And and so how do you, do you kind of think of those two ideas of faith in similar ways? Mm, that's something I love thinking about. I feel as though um, one thing that, okay, well, so first I should backtrack a bit and say, um, I grew up really religious, but I had a, sort of a mishmash of um, a religious upbringing and that my family was and still is very Catholic. And so that that was sort of like my first introdu- introduction to Christianity. But then um, when I was in junior high and high school, I started attending much more charismatic, um, ecstatic, um, non-domin- non-denominational Protestant branches of Christianity and going to those services, um, I think in part because they were so much more fun. Mm. But so that's a long way of saying um, I grew up Catholic first. Catholicism, uh, much more so than other kinds of Christianity, um, they emphasize the action. And so, you know, there's like a lot of emphasis placed on like going to mass and like um, taking communion and, and going to confession, all of that. And I think that I, I, I do ha- still have that in terms of just like showing up at the desk to write, you know, because um, so often I don't feel like writing. And so often I can write for, I, I can go like days at a time, weeks at a time. I just feel as though nothing's happening. Um, everything is trash. 
what am I doing with my life? <laughs> right. All of those questions coming up. But I do, I think I do fundamentally believe that if, if I keep showing up at the desk, um, if I keep showing up to my laptop and hanging out with the words, then something will start happening. Right. Yeah. I was, I was raised Catholic also. I've never thought about it that way, but I hear what you're saying with the, the onus is always on you very much. Well, the poet Dean Young says something I love, and he says, you have to sweep the temple steps a lot before the God appears. Mm. Cause you know, like, I, I mean, I love it when I'm writing and I feel super into it and things are really coming and the sentences are, are like, I'm like, fuck yeah, this is <laughs> like, those moments are great. Um, and there's, but there's no way to, for me at least to will them into being right. I can't just like get there. It's so I just have to like keep writing. And for me, at least I work best if I write every day, especially with fiction, fiction wants my attention every day. And if I don't give it attention every day, then I can feel the writing starting to suffer. That's interesting. So even when you're sitting there, like this is total trash, it's just like, okay, keep going. Do you have like a a kind of time that you put in every day? Or do you have a a ritual with it that way? Well, with the first novel, I used sort of a variety of rules. So for often like word limit actually really helps me, um, especially in the early drafts when I'm trying to let myself be okay with with much more mess than, than I'm okay with in general with prose. Because <laughs> I love sentences. I love words. I love syllables. I love like just like really zooming in on punctuation and all of that I found is is not as helpful in early drafts especially with something as unwieldy as a novel and so in early drafts I find that word limits helps so let's see with the first novel and with my new novel which I've now been working on for three years um like 300 words a day would sometimes be a word limit I would reach for if I was if I was at an artist residency where I just had like all day to write. I sometimes would try for like 500 or 1000 words a day, knowing and fully understanding that much of it is going to end up being thrown away. But at least it's something, you know, like just to, to get something down that I can start working with. Yeah, I think it's so hard when you do love the the playing with language. This is something I've really had to kind of like, deliberately sort of train myself to do the opposite of my instinct, which is to just like obsess sentence by sentence. And, and so especially like you're saying in those early phases where it's like, just get it out, it's really hard to kind of keep yourself from diving in there and kind of getting granular. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I really love often in the midst of a conversation, someone will say a word and I'll just, I'll just like space out because I just feel like I, I really like that word. Um, like that, like that, the word's so interesting. <laughs> And I'll just be like, hold on, I'll like email myself the word because I just like want to like use it maybe in my novel. And all of that, you know, that's like so much of where I get my joy in terms of um, writing and reading. Totally. And that's nice, you know, joy is good. But uh, but yeah, with early drafts, it's just, it's it, it can often be as much of a hindrance as it can be a help. Well, can we talk a little bit about the book coming into being? I know it's a long time in the making, as many novels are, and that it draws so much on your personal experience with your own loss of faith. And and so I'm really curious to talk to you about getting to the the critical distance that you needed to do that. Almost kind of like we're talking about with first drafts and, and revisions, I can kind of see it being this sort of thing where there's maybe like a big purge of all of those thoughts and feelings and ideas in the beginning, and then you kind of have to take some time away from it and really look more editorially, more sharply at what you're working with. But how did that come up for you? Mm, that's interesting. Um, the genesis of the book definitely came from my having grown up so religious that I thought I was going to be a pastor and then losing that faith when I was 17. Um and how devastating all of that was. And 
and my desire is to talk about that, but also how wonderful it was to believe. Um, it, it, so that, that sort of loss, which is, which was and is the pivotal loss of my life, um, around which it really feels as though my life has been split into a before and after. Was that a very sharp kind of undeniable moment or was that a gradual process of loss? It was gradual and then it was sharp. So um, that was one of the more directly um, autobiographical elements of the book. So Will Kendall in The Incendiaries, it, he's the one who who loses his faith. He's the one who grows up religious, thought he's going to be a pastor, goes to Bible college and then loses his faith. So I gave him the most, um, that's part, that's, those are some of the most emotionally autobiographical parts of the book. Not in terms of like every like detail lining up with my own life, but there's a part where he says that losing faith, it was like pe what people say about bankruptcy, it happens gradually on, and then all at once. So that was what it felt like for me. There was a mounting pressure of questions um, that's not even that I needed answers um, necessarily. It's more that there were questions that for me could not be accommodated with within um, the Christian set of beliefs that I held. There was this mounting pressure, and then one day it was gone. It was the most terrifying experience of my life, but the way I like jokingly describe it is I, I say it felt like, you know, like in zombie movies, um, how there were like three zombies and then like a hundred, and they're all like yeah. pushing at a door, and there's someone on the other side of the door, and it's a human, and you're like, oh shit, that door's going to break. Dude's definitely getting turned into a zombie. Yeah. yeah. Like it felt like that, um, where there was so much pressure and then one day it just like the door opened and it was over. So, uh, but going back to your first question, um, I, I think this is something I only realized in retrospect because um, it was so hard for me to write about. Um, and it was so important to me that I put it down in a way that felt truthful to my experience of losing faith. Like I, like that, like I, I really needed that to feel right on the page. And I think in retrospect, it really helped me that I gave my deepest uh, pain and trauma to a character who is um, a straight white man, therefore as demographically unlike me as, as, as is humanly possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, and so I, there are ways in which, um, because if people mix me up with the central Korean American woman character sure. pretty often, you know, like Phoebe Lynn, who's the one who falls into the cult. Like people will ask like, oh, people will just like get a little confused and they'll say like, oh, so what was it like being a piano prodigy, which is what she is in the book. And I'm just like, oh, I, I never was a piano prodigy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> which is but so like, frustrating too, because it's like, I don't know, when Jamie Quattro was on the show, we had this whole conversation about how nobody believes that women writers can like have imaginations. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've been getting really hung up with that with um, my second novel, um, which uh, has a, the central narrator um, is a Korean American woman artist. Um, and the book seems to want to be full of sex. And I'm, and I'm just like proactive. It's like, it's like, it's like, I'm very prematurely, very stressed out. It's giving this like extra dimension of this is very difficult to write because I fully understand that like people are going to be like, Oh my God, this is totally about her. <laughs> right. And I know all about this woman's sex life. And I'll, and I'll be like, no, it's fiction. And like, there, there are gonna be a lot of people who won't believe me. Um, but yeah, I know Jamie Quattro must run into that a lot with um, with her books, which I love. That was really kind of reassuring to me, actually, for my own project and process, reading about Will, or reading Will rather, and then kind of, you know, learning about your backstory. Because I feel like I'm doing similar things in my novel in progress. And I've often really struggled with this idea that the person that I'm giving all of that 
to is like a straight white dude. And in my case, like a little bit older also. And so it's just kind of like, I don't want to just write, you know, male fiction. And then you have that you get so in your head about like, we've internalized all of these ideas about what literature looks like and how and how white and male and heterosexual it is. And then, you know, you can just kind of like really wrap yourself in circles with all of that. But I think you're right that that when you are working through stuff, it is just sort of maybe a natural way that your brain is using to kind of give a little bit of separation. Yeah. And I think that's part of, um, I mean, I also, you know, I love and value writing nonfiction as well, but like for me, you know, like when I'm writing from the core, like when I'm, when I'm truly writing from the depths, um, that's for me, that's fiction. Um, and I think a lot of that does come from, you know, it's a very thin veil. It's a very thin curtain sometimes, but, but it's still a curtain and the curtain is, Fiction gives it just gives me plausible deniability, you know. Like I could write like the most autobiographical, I don't know, um, chapter or story or whatever, um, and friends and people who know me could be like, uh, "This reads like memoir." Like I I know this happened, and I was I can still be like, "Well, you know, like I made up a lot of it. Like I made up a lot of details. I made up a lot of how I felt about it." Like you don't know. <laughs> you don't know me yeah yeah and it's just like I feel as I have to have that plausible deniability for me as a as, as someone who primarily identifies as a fiction writer otherwise like I, it's hard for, for me to be as honest as I feel I want to be and have to be when I'm writing absolutely it's what kind of like lets you relax into the like I mean it's that it's that old thing of like lying to tell the truth yeah, exactly. Again, for me, I know this isn't true for like nonfiction writers, but for me, like facts get in the way of truth. And it's like, I, I need the facts to be more malleable so that so that I can get at the truth. Yeah, <laughs> multiple truths. A uh, truth. I don't know. <laughs> I love and would be really, I'm really interested to hear sort of how I know, I know a lot of this stuff is just, you know, like, projects tell you how they want to be made. But I really enjoyed the kind of distance that you keep the reader at from various characters, the various distances Mm -hmm. that we have from various characters. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you started that, you know, sorry, this always sounds like so stupid when I'm asking these questions about like, how did this happen? I'm just like, nobody, nobody started like that. (laughs) It's just like, it started (laughs) as a mess and then they figured it out. But like, how long did it take you to kind of come to like the structure of the book that like, okay, you know, we're going to see Phoebe largely through Will's perception of her and we're going to get real close to him but we don't really know a lot about him and Phoebe is going to be a little bit further away and then John is going to be a little bit further away yeah um okay so for the first two years the book was told entirely from Phoebe's point of view um so that was a Korean American woman um, who had a lot of like she shared a lot of like my experience with faith so she was actually in the very first permutation of, of this novel um she was someone who loses and then gains a face. Um, and then after those two years, I threw everything I had away. Um, Cause she was just, at that point, the book was like, it was kind of just, a, it, it was, it was sort of, as far as I could tell, it was about a woman who was wandering around um, by herself, like being melancholic and meditating on the nature of an absent God. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, which, you know, and, and, you know, like part of it is I, I, I love meditative walking around melancholic books. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, like I love Teju Cole. I love Open City. I love Dayball. Like, but I don't think that's what this book wanted to be. And uh-huh. it's only once I started externalizing some of my obsessions with faith and grief and loss and love that the book started really coming to life. And so that's when Will started um, 
for let's say from years two to six, Will Kendall then was the only narrator of the book. And I did that in part because um, Phoebe, you know, like, I don't think I'm giving away anything to say that Phoebe uh, goes through so much, you know, like she, mm-hmm. she has such, um, she loses a great deal and then she feels that she gains a great deal. And her experience of the world felt really spiky. Like the highs were so high, the lows were so low and they were coming really fast. Mm-hmm. And I found that like having Will narrate a lot of the book instead, and at that at, at that point, he was narrating the whole book. Um, it just let a lot more air into the room, into the book. It allowed for more, um, just like more varieties of, of emotional range in a way. And then at the six year mark, I showed it to my agent and, <laughs> and my agent uh, was like, okay, I just feel as though one of her thoughts was, I feel as though we don't, I just feel so I'm not getting enough of the cult. And I found it, I very much agreed with her. I never made a change I, I didn't agree with. Um, I wildly agreed with her though. And then, so that was when John Leal's point of view started coming in. And then at the eight year mark, maybe seven and a half. Uh, I showed it again to my agent after I revised a lot. And then she was like, I just, I just feel as though there still isn't enough of Phoebe. And I was like, Oh God damn it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> there were those like two years of work with Phoebe that I'd basically thrown away. But I, real, I realized, you know, like there, there was a lot I knew about Phoebe that wasn't necessarily making it onto the page. And so that was when Phoebe's point of view started coming in so this is a very long way of saying that it all came together o- across 10 years and I, I did not plan for this to happen. <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting. And it's it's also so funny, like the potted history of it. It was like, and then two years later, my agent saw a second draft. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, I forgot. There was a, there were several months during which I was writing. There were like a whole hundred pages I wrote from the point of view of Phoebe's father. Okay. And it was set in like 1970 South Korea. Um, and that just, I, it just ended up not working. And I threw all of that away. Yeah. <laughs> right. Do you feel like that you needed to write all that? I think you kind of have to come to the idea that you needed to write all of that. Otherwise you go insane. Well, I, you know, I tell myself that every book is a palimpsest <laughs> right? and then nothing was wasted. And it all sort of underlying the book, the ghosts of what I threw away are all, are all in the book. And you're right at the very least. Um, it, it's a, it's a better story for me to tell myself than any other, than any other kind of story about the amount of time that that was put into it. And how many pages were thrown away. <laughs> right, right, right. Is it is it difficult for you to throw away or are you pretty ruthless? Oh, I don't, I don't mind. I never mind um, throwing things away. And, and I also like, I soften the blow for myself because I keep, with everything I work on, including like a review or an essay, um, I keep a file that's like, title and then scraps Mm -hmm. so I put anything I'm deleting there and so I I, I say scraps because I know like other people title title such documents like graveyard or like death vault or like people can really really meddle about it but like um scraps to me that sounds like friendly like hey you know maybe I'll go back in there who knows yeah. <laughs> it's like little, like little loose bits of fabric that you can like make a quilt out of or something. Yeah. 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 They're not like, it's not, it's not death. It's just going somewhere else for a little while. It's just going to a, a farm. <laughs> <laughs> What's your like nitty gritty, like actual writing setup? Like, are you using like Scrivener or some kind of storyboarding thing like that? Or do you just go word? I just use word. Yeah. Um, I know, I know people really love Scrivener, but like I tried opening it and I just was like, this is really complicated looking. (laughs) (laughs) I just use Word. Um, Yeah, I write at my desk, which is in um, my dining room. And 
I sometimes will write by hand. So I've yeah. written several drafts, um, both of the first book and now of the, of the second book um, by hand. But other than that, that's as fancy as I get. Yeah. I find writing by hand really helpful, especially in the beginning or like when I get really stuck. Yeah. And it's kind of crazy to, to see like what a different process it is. Yeah, there's something, um, there's something like, I think, physically rewarding about um, having a pen sort of scratching. And and there's something also very lovely about the fact that like, especially if you're writing with a pen, um, you can cross things out, but there's still evidence that like, you know, you like, you wrote some shit, like even if like pages and pages are crossed out, you still, that's still like, oh, that's like work I did. Whereas on the, I think on a laptop screen, especially with early drafts, it can feel really frustrating to be like, oh my God, I'm still on page five and it's been like, months. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. And Scrivener has this feature that I finally figured out how to opt out of, um, where it would like count, it would go to negatives. So like if you wrote oh. 500 words, but then you deleted 200, then it's just like, no, no, who wants to know that? <laughs> I'm glad you can opt out of it. Yeah. Oh, God, no, that's terrible. <laughs> Cause it's funny what you said about, you know, that, that you started kind of working toward word limits uh, when you're thinking about getting a, a kind of day's worth of writing done. Because I think for a long time, I've just kind of made that mental switch. And I think so much always comes back to just like letting yourself work the way that you work. But like, I was using chapters as a measure, like a progress, like, okay, well, but in, you know, in two weeks, I want to have this chapter done or whatever. But whenever I started doing that, I would just write all over the place. Like I would have one idea for this section that I'm not in anymore or like a character that I'm not dealing with right now. And so I was finally just like, okay, you just have to like let it all happen and figure out how else you can like quantify it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I haven't really used um, time as a metric for how much writing I want to get done in a given day. Um, but I think part of that is because I I spend so much of my writing time not writing, yeah. you know? If I like am am sitting there with the intention to write and I'm like and I'm and I'm like diverted and I'm like reading poems like I'm still like okay I think this is still this still to me feels like writing time mm-hmm. as long as I consciously know like I'm reading these poems in part to like help myself like get back into the world of my novel like that's like completely writing time yeah I'm not surprised to hear that poetry reading would be a part of your process I feel like that's very evident I think in your prose. Oh, thank you for saying that. Um, yeah, I, lo- I really love reading reading poetry. And I feel as though I have a couple of poems memorized and like fragments of other poems memorized, but that's an ongoing project for me. I really want to memorize more of the poems I love because I feel as though there's such a difference. And this is something I always, anytime I teach writing, I always have everyone um, memorize like one poem. Mm. And it's the assignment that usually people like hate the most. But then afterward, at the end of class, like a number of students will always be like, actually, that was like the best thing we did all class. And there's a thing about like getting the rhythms of, of a piece of writing that you really love. Um, like it's like, it's like, I, w- I want to memorize so I can have it like in my blood um, almost. And then it like really helps me in a way. It doesn't necessarily help as much if it's not memorized. Absolutely. Who are some of your favorite poets? Uh, let's see. Um, Ones I have on reread are um, Dickinson and Bishop. Lately, I really love Natalie Diaz's poetry mm. um, and Ada Limon's. And I've been getting really into Nicole Seeley's poetry, too. Um, Kaba Akbar is so wonderful. Franny Choi is someone I've been really excited about lately, too. Tiana Clark. Um, yeah, I could keep going. <laughs> Yeah, no, it feels like a really, an especially great moment for poetry lately. Yeah, and I love, um, I mean, I like love poetry Twitter often, and that like so often, I feel so so many um, poets I know are so often just like 
they're like tweeting like whole poems and right. it's like this is so wonderful like like I feel so much better reading this poem than I do reading like I don't know about what what whatever else is happening on Twitter <laughs> absolutely no and like yeah the the examples that are coming to mind for me I think are, are maybe less like their own poems but like Ilya Kaminsky is like thank god he's on Twitter and yeah. Maggie Smith I just can't like I just love I, I don't know I feel like I just need to like if she, Maggie Smith, if by chance you're listening to this and you would just like read your tweets aloud and like Patreon page them, I would be all about that. <laughs> so I'm just like, I feel like I just need Maggie Smith's voice in my head being like, everything's fine. <laughs> Ilya Kaminsky's um, poetry is incredible. Um, I also, um, I was just at uh, Breloaf and he came to read um, and his reading, I, I'd never heard him read in person and it was it was something else if you or if anyone listening ever has a chance to go hear um Ilya read it's 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 incredible yeah um and I it's it's a thing that I've realized like kind of later in my adult reading life that is a thing a a thing I'm really drawn to are novels by poets Mm -hmm. it's like a special little subcategory that are like Garth Greenwell um, I'm trying to think who else. I was just talking with somebody about somebody else today. Garth is the only one spring to mind right now, of course. But but there's just something about that um, that sensibility coming into prose that's so special. Yeah, 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 definitely. Sontag had this term, um, lexical inevit- inevitability, um, and she used that to talk about like the prose of poets and how you know, like when, when with poems too, but, um, and with prose sometimes, you know, when you just like feel as though you read a line or you read a poem and you're just like, every word really feels as though it couldn't possibly have been any other way. Mm-hmm. And I think part of what took me so long with, with the incendiaries is that I, I, I really wanted it to get to a point where I could open it at random, pick out a line and not want to change it mm. in part because it's kind of how I decide what I'll read next. You know, like I, I have like, I have the usual just like piles of guilt um, that everyone has of yeah. like, <laughs> of like, here are the next 150 books um, that are on my TB- TBR list. Um, but how I'll usually pick what I'll read next, unless I'm going to review a book and or unless it's like a very good friend's book, in which case I want to read it as soon as possible. Um, I'll just like pick up a book at random and read a few lines in the middle. Um, and if those feel alive to me, if those feel exciting, um, then I'll be like, oh, okay, then maybe this is what I'll read next. Mm. Um, but if those don't feel alive if those don't feel exciting and then I'm less inspired um and then so I very early on realized that um I had to apply my same terribly persnickety test (laughs) of prose to my own fucking book (laughs) I love that though I think that's such a I mean on the one hand it sounds like kind of an impossible goal but but in a good way like you're, you know, you'll know the difference between um, I want to fuss with this and make it worse and just like, oh, no, I can make this better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and granted, I haven't um, I haven't reread the, the book from, from the start to the finish um, ever since it, its last copy, copy editing round. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. I don't know how well it worked, but at least at the time there was a moment. <laughs> yeah. That reminds me of on on actually the very first episode of the podcast, Emily St. John Mandel was saying that she will often edit pages, like she'll just print a chapter and shuffle the pages and edit like in like out of order, just sentence by sentence. Oh, that's so cool. I love that. I love that a lot. That's so interesting. Yeah. Have you joined WMFA's Patreon community yet? Patreon is a digital platform that allows fans to support creators and their work directly. 
When you become a patron, you pledge a monthly amount of your choosing, and I give you rewards like exclusive writings, notes of creative encouragement, and bonus segments, including a bonus segment from this very episode. That reward, by the way, is just $2 a month. By joining my Patreon community, you're growing the world of WMFA one writer at a time, plus supporting a whole community of independent creatives, from audio editors to graphic designers. And creative community is what WMFA is all about. Join today at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash W-M-F-A podcast. Thank you for supporting the show. What brought you to writing? Have you written your whole life? I think I was a reader first. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, not I think. I was definitely a reader first. Um, So I, I was always, you know, I was always reading. Reading was my favorite thing to do. I feel as though, like, when I look back at my childhood, like one recurring motif was just like feeling severely irritated and or unhappy because I had to go do something else that was not reading. Yeah. So I didn't write all that much until college. Like I wasn't one of those kids who's written like 40 books by the time they're 18. Um, I'd written like maybe a few stories and that was it. But then once I got to college, I took a writing course every semester. And after I gave up the whole wanting to be a pastor thing, um, at some point, senior year of high school, I remember a principal asked like a group of us just, you know, what do you think you want to be? And, um, and I remember saying, I want to write novels. I want to be a writer. And so I think like, at least when I was in high school, like I I knew that was what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. But then in college, I, while I did take a writing class every semester, I also majored in economics. I I, I just like had this, you know, idea that I needed, I I would need minor things like healthcare and, um, right. And like a job. (laughs) (laughs) And um, especially then, like there were so few models and um, there's so many more now, thank goodness, but there were so few models for like what it meant to be Asian American and an artist, mm. like how to, how to be an Asian American artist. Like there, there were so few models. So like, I, like I knew a lot about how like Henry James had become a writer, Virginia Woolf, um, like extremely dead people. I understood sure. how they had become writers, but like, I didn't really have models. I didn't know how to go about doing it. So I thought I would just well, what I did was I got a job um, in management consulting of all things after college. And I thought I would try to write on the side, but I was working like 90 hours a week and I was so miserable. Um, and I didn't have time to write, let alone to read. And so that same year I applied to graduate school in writing and that was, and then, yeah, ever since I've, I've thought of myself as a writer. Right. Yeah. And um, what was your graduate experience like? It was overall really, really lovely. I went to Brooklyn College. Um, Michael Cunningham was the director. I love him, and um, and I love his writing. Mm-hmm. And the faculty uh, were, in general, really kind and supportive. My cohort was, in general, kind and supportive. They, I think the faculty and Michael, they worked very hard to try to make it an environment in which people would feel um, collegial rather than competitive with one another. And so when I hear about other people's experiences of their MFAs, it really doesn't, I, I feel as though I got out relatively unscathed from, from what can happen in MFA programs. Right. Yeah. Was the, the germ of the incendiaries that that exists? Yeah. I started program? working on it on uh, my second year um, of the MFA. So yes. Do you teach now? How do you, how do you spend your, yeah, your time so, now? Um, well, before the book came out, um, I was teaching at the university of San Francisco Um and then once the book came out, like, so, so for like a year, um, I wasn't able to commit to teaching because I was traveling so much. Um, and I, and I was adjunct teaching, so I'm, it was easy to just be like, I'm not available this year. 
And this fall, I'm still traveling enough, but regular teaching, it would have been, it would have been irresponsible of me to sign up to teach a fall class because I've been away so much um, and I'm still going to be away so much, but I'm thesis advising at the, at USF this fall. And then in the spring, and I'm really excited about this, I'm going to teach for a term at uh, Scripps College um, in LA, which is a school, it's one of the Claremont colleges and it's, and it's for women and non-binary people. Um, and so I, I've just like never taught in that in, in that environment. And I'm super, super psyched. <laughs> yeah. I taught a, a course at Sweetbriar mm-hmm. College this spring with a couple other artists and it was like an interdisciplinary class. And it was incredible to have like a room full of female and non-binary and, and no men. It was really shocking to see like the difference in the like their confidence level, their like readiness to like speak up or like argue points or it was, they were like incredibly supportive, but just like very comfortable and in a way I had never quite seen in a classroom. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I, and I, and I, I was looking back and I was realizing, you know, like I've, I've never been in a writing classroom, um, whether it was teaching or being a student without any men in it. And that, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm so, I'm so curious about what it'll be like and I'm so excited. So that'll be in the spring. Do you want to say any more about the new novel? I know that sometimes oh, it can sure. it can be very tight lipped, but if you want to talk about kind of where you're at with it or how you're how it's coming together, yeah, of course. Um, it's centered on two women who are both artists. One's a choreographer, one's a photographer, and the photographer becomes um, professionally and then more personally obsessed with the choreographer. And with the book, I think what uh, a central question that I'm grappling with or a central question I'm interested in is like what it is that women are allowed to want um, and what and what generalizing makes me nervous. What I as a woman mm-hmm. feel that I am allowed to want and often pushed to want mm-hmm. and the ways in which that often revolves around caretaking, which means I, I feel most supported by the world at large when I want to take care of other people. Yes. That means when my primary want, if it seems to be taking care of other people's wants, essentially, and anytime I want anything for myself, um, whether that has to do with art, ambition, a job, um, my body with sex, mm-hmm. then then that feels immediately more suspect, um, more like something that has to be defended or maybe even hidden. And I'm curious about that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious about why that is. Um, and so I wanted to write a book with two women who just like, you know, they're, they're both very serious artists who want and want and want and want. And I want to know, I don't want to see what happens if I just explore that and, and show what that can feel like. Yeah. It, it reminds me of that. Um, I can never remember her last name. Is it Claire? Is it Didier? She wrote, um, Debtorer. Okay, I haven't read this. She um, wrote um, "Love and Trouble" is her memoir. Oh, I've heard the title, but I haven't. Um, I haven't read the book. I actually okay. haven't read the book either. But she wrote a great, very complicated, but I think overall very good uh, Paris Review Daily essay about partially about Woody Allen, and then kind of also about this idea of like art monsters and how like women aren't allowed to be art monsters. Oh yes, 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 yes. Oh, now I um I think I I remember reading that piece too. Um. I spoke um, at an MFA program where I met her and she was talking about her project and it seemed really interesting. Yeah. And I think that's such a, you know, and you alluded to it when you were talking about um, your studies, your undergraduate studies, but that was, that was a really striking thing for me too. Later, once I kind of realized it, that I didn't have models for what I kind of wanted to be in the world, what that really looked like. And it was a really striking thing for me just a couple of years ago when I went to my first residency and saw like, mature women artists, like women Mm. in their like 50s and 60s that I really kind of clicked for me like, oh, this is the model of how I could 
be in the world. Yeah. And like, I didn't necessarily know how much I was lacking it. Yeah. 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 That's, um, it's only a retrospect that I realized. So I didn't read, um, Korean American writers and I'm Korean, um, until after college, you like, I didn't even know to mourn what I didn't know I was missing until afterwards, until I started reading Korean American writers. And then, then I was like, Oh my God, what that meant was I'd spent my entire reading life up until then obsessed with an art form in which I physically did not and could not exist. Um, you know, especially since, um, I grew up reading again, like Henry James and like Virginia Woolf and Tolstoy. Um, and I still love these writers. I love them so much. Um, I'll reread a lot of these books until I die. But I, as a Korean American woman, could never have existed in their worlds, you know, like I would never have been led into the drawing rooms. Even I wouldn't have been allowed to like talk with the people like on that, on those pages. Um, and I can only imagine how different things could have been um, if I hadn't grown up that way. And it's really exciting to me. And I love that there are so many more chances for readers, especially younger readers, to um, to not be absent in the books that they're reading. I was at the National Book Festival over the weekend. And one of the people in the signing line was, um, he was a boy. And I, I didn't ask him because I didn't want, I didn't want him I don't want to point point out how young he was. But he I think he might have been like 13 or 14. And he was asking me like, he'd read my book and he was like talking to me about like the structure of it and how, and like, and like how, like how like he he was comparing it to like the structures of some other novels by Asian writers that he'd been reading. And I like was like trying not to cry and or freak out about, (laughs) about, about how beautiful that was. And, and just seeing that in like, in like this person who was clearly like still like in high school at best, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Was that something that you grappled with? I mean, I I guess it's a two-part question. You know, similar to what you were saying about the novel you're working on now, that idea of being, like, you know, nervous in advance for for how it might be received in certain ways. Like, were you feeling that pressure of, is this going to be an identity book that I'm going to have to kind of answer for in that sort of way? The, The sort of the way that the book, like, wears the characters that, you know, that do have the Korean American identities, like the the way that you're portraying them, or, you know, how, how did you, did you struggle with that? Or I don't want to make it sound like it has to be a struggle, but, you know, if it, if it's something that, that was a kind of fruitful area of thought for you. Yeah. Um, let's see. I wasn't thinking too much about that, um, except insofar as I, I, I definitely really wanted to have central characters who are Korean in the book. Like that was important to me. Um, it's difficult for me to imagine like writing a book ever that wouldn't, um, like I just wouldn't do it. Um, but there are ways in which, um, okay. So I grew up in a town that was 80% Asian in LA and my high school, my public high school was 80% Asian, um, as was my junior high. And what that means is that until I reached like late junior high, early high school, um, until I started, until I started reading the news, I didn't even really fully understand that Asian people were a minority in this country. And so I just kind of thought, I don't know, like I knew there had been like a lot of white people at one point, but sure. like I hadn't really like thought through yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> like where, what like other parts of the country were like. Um, so I didn't really grow up with a lot of like, I didn't hear racial slurs growing up, you know, like I didn't encounter like that sort of like direct um, in your face racism mm-hmm. that I think 
a lot of Asian American people that I know um, grew up with and or are growing up with now. And so in, there are ways in which like with the incendiaries, I really didn't, I wasn't at all interested in, um, I didn't feel any need to, well, there are like no racial slurs in the book. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and race, of course, plays a role in the book because there are characters, I mean, I mean, because race plays a role in every book. Mm-hmm. And there are ways in which Koreanness and being Korean American are very important to the characters, and there are ways in which I really wanted to center that. But I, I wasn't necessarily interested in talking about in centering racial trauma, and that is something that I always try to tell writers, I th- especially writers who are marginalized in any way, is that you know, like trauma is is I think the story that is often expected of marginalized writers. And I like telling writers, like, you don't owe anyone your trauma. You know, like, you don't yes. owe anyone, let alone expected stories of trauma. Um, your joy is, 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 is just as valid and just as interesting. Um, and yeah. Yeah, it, it makes me think a couple months ago, um, Kristen Arnett was on and she, she was saying a very similar thing about queer narratives, that it was very important for her to not write a coming out book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just like to show just like queer daily life. Yeah. Um, and I did think about it. I think I thought about it in terms of audience um, when, well, so, you know, like people often ask a question like, who were you thinking of when you wrote this book? Like, who was your audience? And I used to think my answer was just like so straightforward. It was boring, um, which, and my answer was just like, you know, I write for myself mm-hmm. when I'm writing. It's so absorbing. I really, I can't really think about anybody else or it's too distracting. But then I thought more about it and I was like, wait, um, if I'm writing for myself and I'm the, I'm the audience, then that means I'm centering Korean American immigrant woman who's queer as a reader and that's not a body that has very often been centered in American letters as a reader. And so that does have implications for how I write. And I very much want to do that. Like, um, so for instance, like there were, there were, there were a lot of decisions I made along the way. So like at one point reading a draft, a reader said, there's a point when um, the first time Phoebe is called by her Korean name, which is Hejin, the first time she's called Hejin by her mother, I don't explain that Hejin is her Korean name, you know, like she just has her mother calling her by a name that's not Phoebe. And then there was a reader who said, well, do you want to explain that? Like, do you want to like have a note there so people don't get confused? And I was like, who are people, you know, like right. who are these people who will get confused when every Asian American person I can think of would totally understand that there's a family name and then there's an English name you use with the rest of the world. Um, and a lot of non-Asian people would understand that. And like, it's okay to be a little confused sometimes, yeah. you know, like I think so much about like how much I've learned over the years about sailing. Like I've learned so much about sailing. I've looked up so many sailing terms, um, because of my reading <laughs> And like, I've been on a sailboat once and, right. <laughs> and that's fine. I like looking up words. Looking up words is fun. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's that say, you know, it's like, just does like, you know, you don't owe anybody your trauma. You don't have to be like the tour guide for anybody. Yes. And like explaining from the inside out can also feel like, a, um, I myself am not interested in doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel as though that's, you know, like that's, that's, that's great. You know, like I've been spending the bulk of my reading life reading books that were not written explicitly with me, a queer Korean American woman immigrant as a reader in mind. Right, right. And that's fine. 
Right. Yeah, absolutely. I come from Appalachia and that's the focus of my fiction as well. And that's something I think about a lot with that too. And that idea of like, um, you know, I, this is a little bit more pointed for Appalachia right now, just politically and, you know, since, mm-hmm. since the election, but like that is a place that people very much want quote unquote explained to them. Yeah. The other day I was asked like, well, but like, what's the story that you would tell, you know, and people want to know like, like what the Appalachian narrative is. And I was just like, that's so insulting. Like there's not one, there's not one narrative of anything. And like, I'm, oh, yeah. you know, to have to kind of play into that idea of like, well, here, how can I boil this down for you into a way that like is palatable? And I realize it's slightly different from what you're describing, but I, those, those concerns, I think whenever you're, you know, frankly, not like a white straight male writer, probably American yeah. writer, probably just like so tied up in everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The way that question is framed, I would feel insulted. Um, the Appalachian narrative, like, what the fuck, man? Mm-hmm. <laughs> totally. Like, I'm writing a book and I'm one person. There were a, a couple of times um, people who were white men did ask, um, you know, they asked, they've asked variations of a question that was basically like, did you, like, one person asked, I think it was something like, did, was race like an afterthought with your characters? Like, did you, was that something that you thought of from the start? And I was like, what the fuck? Oh my like, God. yeah. How could race be an afterthought? Um, how could, like, only, huh, how to say this? Um, of course, it wasn't an afterthought, but I think the question was asked because racial trauma is not foregrounded in the incendiaries. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, well, where's the racial trauma? And, and if the racial trauma isn't there, then like, why are there Asian people? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, What if not to teach me a white person a lesson, like, what are you doing? <laughs> right, right, right. Like, this question has never come up for me in workshops, but I know a lot of my Asian American writer friends have been in workshops where they've been asked variations of questions like, what is the point of this character being Asian? Or like, what is the point of this character being of color or being black? Or like, like what? why did you do? And then it's, and it's like, we don't, our race doesn't have to have a point. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. It doesn't have a point. It's it's part of who we are. Like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Something that you just said, though, just the way that you phrased it remind me that this, this is another note that I had jotted down. Um, and it's similar language, but a completely different tone. So I'm not, I'm not trying to follow that line of thought at all. But um, I was listening to your great interview on the Maris Review yesterday. Mm-hmm. And you made some reference to writing and thinking about, you know, why the characters were even on the page. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was such an important and interesting note, that idea of just like, are they kind of carrying their weight or like how, how they're sort of like moving the story forward. And I just wondered if you could, if you remember kind of, saying that or the gist of that conversation, if you could just kind of expand on that a little bit. Hmm, I'm not sure. I I just listened to the podcast, so but I'm somehow not remembering exactly what I'd said about that. But I wonder if I was referring to, um, so the, with, the, with the way the book is structured. Um, so again, I don't think I'm giving too much away if I say, if I say that. Um, you know, like it, in a lot of ways, the book is primarily narrated by Will, even as it sort of rotates points of view. And I, I think I was drawn to the to the book being told in that way in part because um and I know a lot of writers like never worry about this but I wanted there for a reason for the story to be told even within the confines of um of of the fictional world of the book I I I wanted there to be a reason for this like whole story to be unspooling for the words to even exist um as a unit the way they do in a book so this idea of like Will trying to understand what happened how this woman he loves 
um, how, how she fell into this cult, that, that process of understanding gave me what I found to be a fruitful organizing technique <laughs> for, the, for the book. Right. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And I think that was it. And I like that idea of like, well, why is this story being told right now? It's kind of similar, you know, that that you can you can be your own audience, but you still need a reason to to be telling yourself the story. Yeah, exactly. Um, I was just a brother. So I was um, listening to a lot of um, really wonderful talks and readings. And um, Alex Chi was giving a talk um about Baldwin and he made this distinction that I, I, I think I've somehow never heard this distinction made, but it's so clean and beautiful. Um, the difference between point of view and point of telling. Um, mm. So, you know, point of view, we all know what that is, like whatever, like third person, first person. Um, but point of telling this idea of like being clear to yourself about where it is this the story is being told from, um, like where in time and maybe where in space even. And I think, yeah, I think without having put it to myself that way. I, I I wanted there to be a clear point of telling for the book. I love that. I just finished his essay collection and I was like photocopying full pages of it before I like returned it to the library. <laughs> it's just like, I oh need these God. paragraphs in that front of me forever. So good. It's so incredible. Is, I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> the thing that I always like to ask everybody at the end is what does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? <sighs> creative satisfaction. Um, it feels a part of part of being a writer, being an artist, is very much um, signing up for a life of perpetual dissatisfaction um, <laughs> with at least my own work. Um, that said, I do with my fiction. It is very important to me to get it to a place where the sentences feel as though they couldn't possibly have been any other way as though that that's the only, that's the only way they, they could ever have been. Um, so yeah, that, that sort of takes a while. <laughs> um, there's something that Martha Graham said that I love that I think about a lot. And she said, um, no artist is pleased, no satisfaction, whatever, at any time, there's only a queer divine dissatisfaction, a blessed unrest that keeps us marching and keep and makes us more alive than the others. <laughs> I love and that. And I'm not sure we're necessarily more alive than the others. That feels like a value statement. I'm not sure I'd stand behind, but yeah. at the very least, like, I, I love the like energy behind that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. She also, the keep the channel open quote is her too, right? Martha Graham? Uh, yeah, I think so. She was, she was so cool. Um, yeah. Part of why I made one of my characters a choreographer is because I just, I've just been really loving um, watching and reading about dance. Oh, Yeah. That's super interesting. Well, I'm so excited to read that book. Um, in a oh. few years, you know, whenever <laughs> whenever it's ready. <laughs> Just a little while. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. The best way to support WMFA is to share it. If you enjoyed today's episode, tell a friend or write an iTunes review to help new listeners find the show. Have a question or author recommendation? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at CF Ballastier, or leave a voicemail at 347-685-4836. Today's episode was edited by Irissa Apentaku. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.